there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Yesterday I was listening to the 14th Dalai Lama teaching about the Four Noble Truths, and there were probably thousands of people. Different Buddhist traditions and sects were all there, which was unusual because they're, of course, a lot like the Christians or anyone else who, you know, no, we have the truth, no, our way is the best way. They all came together because of their respect for him. I thought it was interesting. One of the first things that really stood out for me was he was talking about this state of consciousness when you're, you're meditating. He said when you, try to, when you try to meditate or you sit and you're in a reflective mood and you can not be thinking about the future and not be thinking about the past, that there is a space in the moment, in the present moment, where you can enter a kind of a void, a kind of a nothingness, where there are no thoughts and there are no feelings and it's just, just a void. And he didn't really explain much about it other than that. And, and he said, it's, it's really, to, to do that is not very profound. And I thought that that was great because we're trying to get people to do that. After he said it, I thought about it a lot because when I meditate, that's what I'm after. I'm after reaching that place where the thoughts about the future not thinking me, the thoughts about the past are not carrying me off to something. I'm not planning any events. I'm just in that moment, in that void, in that spaciousness, in that state of consciousness where you're not troubled by the future or the past. You're not taken away by it. You're not vexed by it. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, that's right. It's not a very profound state. It's actually a very simple state. We don't have many ideas what very profound states are because we are so, our consciousness is so thick. It's so gross. It's so attached to things, to money, to people, to houses, to attach all kinds of attachments, all kinds of plans for the future, all kinds of desires. And states of consciousness can be seen, they're manifested by desires. The more desire someone has, the more plans they have, the more gross their consciousness tends to be. The fewer plans, the fewer desires, the more subtle their consciousness tends to be because they're closer to this spaciousness, this void. As I thought about it, I thought, well, why is this not profound? That it's not profound because it's just the door. What we've found in that state of consciousness is simply the door to something else. We haven't gone through it. We're actually in the door jam, as it were, between this and that. And maybe we, we are a little bit into to that or a little bit into this, but pretty much we're between. And it's so different for us that we think it profound. But when we begin to experience more and more subtle states of consciousness, we realize that it's not profound at all, it's simply the door. And it would be like you standing at the door of your house. You open the door and you take one step in and you have one step, you're standing there in the door jam. And you're in the house, but you're not really in any place in the house, but you're not outside either. You're not being dragged away by your thoughts outside, you're not doing something outside, but you're not doing anything in the house either. So you're in between. So it, it's really the door and it's this in-between state. And then I realized what he meant by it isn't really profound.
because the profundity comes from the depth of the experience once you pass through that door of consciousness. And the only thing that keeps us from going, passing through that, is our desires, our plans, our attachment to things, our attachment to what we want, what we've got to have, our attachment to our cravings and our aversion. And it is that that keeps us from reaching the subtler states of consciousness that are available to us and that are our right. We have a right to enter. No one is barring the door. We don't go through because we're afraid that we'll lose sight of the things that we're attached to in the world. So in a sense, there's this real man, this real state of consciousness, your real birthright, waiting for you. But because of the attachments, the cravings, the planning, the aversions, we can't enter that because we're so afraid and so greedy and so anxious that we may lose something that is just, we think is just within our grasp. You know, they have eggs. You can buy eggs at the store. They also have little packages like little milk cartons and they're called egg beaters. And they're artificial eggs. They're imitation eggs. And I guess you pour them into a pan and you can scramble them. They have butter and then they have margarine, which is imitation butter. It's not real butter. It's made from vegetable oils or this or that or something else. And, and they try and make it taste like butter or look like butter. Then they have turkey and they have a product called tofurkey. And it's made of tofu. And it's not turkey. It's it's tofu, but it's that they try and make have the texture and the flavor and the smell of turkey. And they do that with all kinds of things. They take soy protein or, or tofu, and they try and make it taste like something that it isn't. So they have these real things, and they have these imitation things. That's got me to thinking about us. There's an imitation man. And essentially, it's like a costume, a tight costume. If you'll think of the Joker in a deck of cards, you know, he has this skin-tight costume he's wearing. And it's like a tight costume like that, that can be stripped off under proper circumstances and reveal something more real, our essential self. This is the object of esoteric teachings. This is the object of Buddhism. This is the object of all of these things, is to strip away this false costume, this imitation thing that we have believed that we are. And if you ate egg beaters and, and margarine and, and tofurkey your whole life, you would never know what eggs and butter and turkey really tasted like. How could you? Because all you had ever had was the imitation. And this is really our state. What we have to compare to is only imitation. We've never really tasted the real, but we can. And that's what esoteric teachings strive for, to give us the opportunity to taste the real, to choose the real, and then to allow the real to emerge. I'm choosing these words carefully because this is a very delicate area. Imitation man may be noble. He may be good, but it's still not the real man. Tofurky may be good. Margarine may be great. Egg beaters may taste wonderful if you mix them up with all kinds of bacon bits or whatever, you know, which kind of defeats the purpose, I guess, doesn't it? <laughs> but they have, they have imitation bacon, too, you know, imitation bacon bits. They're not real. So, so you mix them up, all the right stuff, and it could, taste, it could taste just fine. It could be very good. Salt, pepper, some chilies, and, and some imitation cheese, I don't know, whatever. And it could be good, but it still wouldn't be real. It'd still be imitation. The problem is, is that a good man, a noble man, can often make it more difficult to find essence. 
And why that is, is because if you realize what a mess you are, if you realize how, how much you cause suffering in the world, if you realize how much grief you bring to sentient beings on this planet and to yourself, there's a possibility that you might want to stop that suffering, even if it's just your own selfish desire to stop your own suffering and forget about everybody else. If they all suffer because of you, that's, that's fine. That's not a problem. But just the desire to stop your own suffering could lead you to find out that you are living an imitation life, that you are an imitation man, that you don't really exist. People think that essence is perfect. You find your essential self. Oh, then I'll, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have it made. Then that'll be it. No. In a sense, it is perfect. In the same sense that everything is perfect. In the same sense that, that the automobile accident that happened down the street the other day was perfect. It's perfect because it happened. And it happened perfectly. You know, one guy ran a red light and the other guy was going through a green light and he got T-boned and, and it was a perfect crash. You know, all the glass that was supposed to break broke. All the metal that was supposed to crunch crunched. All the things, all the people that were, all the bodies that were supposed to be thrown around were thrown around. Everything that happened was supposed to be happened just perfectly according to all of the laws that we live under. So in that sense it is perfect. But it's a mistake to think that perfect means completed, fully grown, finished, that it's reached maturity. A child is perfect as a child, but it's not a perfect man. But it's created to be, or it comes, to, it comes into existence to, to grow into a perfect man or, 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 or a woman. So at any stage, each stage is perfect, but it's not completed. So in that sense, essence is perfect, but it's not finished, it's not completed, it's not fully matured. It's like an acorn. In an acorn is a perfect oak tree, but it's not an oak tree. It remains an acorn and still, until it falls into the ground and grows and, and goes through each perfect stage. So in that sense, it's perfect. What we must grasp is that our behavior is not from within, but it's caused by external circumstances in our current state as an imitation man. This is what makes us imitation. Our desires for things, our desires for pleasant sensations, our desires for praise, gratitude, uh, accolades, our desires and our aversions, the things that we don't want, the things that we abhor, the things that we're afraid of, the things that we're terrified of, the things that make us, that, that we're repulsed by, those things also are just as powerful or nearly as powerful as the clinging. It just depends on how much oomph you put into it. And we put a lot of oomph into it. Ethics and morality come from imitation man, not from essence. Though there is such a thing as essential conscience. The work doesn't call it essential conscience, but it is essential conscience. The work calls it buried conscience because it's buried. And I say that your essential self is buried too. It's buried underneath the imitation man. And conscience, real conscience, essential conscience, is buried underneath imitation conscience. And imitation conscience is made up of ethics and morality. As we are, the costume is wearing us. We think it's good that it restricts us, that it keeps our natural urges suppressed. We think it's good that the costume keeps us from strangling someone or, or running into someone or, or running someone off the road when we're enraged or from punching somebody. We think, oh, it's good that that has stopped me. The costume has stopped me. It's my savior. It's helped me. And so we believe in imitation man. We believe in him and we give our allegiance to him and we, give our pa we pay tribute to him. We give him energy. We give him honor. We give him all of the things that we think we should give to our God, to our Savior, 
to that which kept us from making this horrible mistake. It comes from this belief that we have to have this costume to restrict us, that we have to have these morals and these ethics to restrict us. It comes from the belief that man is bad. Man is a bad being, and he needs to be corrected and guided and led from the outside. He needs, well, he needs morals and ethics. So he has to be restricted so that he can be made good against his very nature. So the nature of man essentially is bad. This is what, we, this is what imitation man really believes. That the nature of man is bad, he must be restricted and disciplined in order to be made good against his nature. And of course it's an uphill battle if it's against his nature. Here we have then ethics, which is a set of moral principles guiding conduct, and morals. And morals simply are the principles of right and wrong. So we set up morals, the principles of right and wrong, and then we have ethics that guide us in the conduct of living a life of right or wrong. And this is the costume that we wear. This is what restricts us. This is what guides us. This is what keeps us in line. This is what keeps the bad in us from squirting out all over the earth and ruining it. Oops, what happened? It's not working, is it? Perhaps it's because the premise is wrong. Perhaps man isn't bad by nature. Maybe he's good by nature. Oh, no. No, we can't even believe that. See, the, all the morals and the ethics start to scream, no. If you left your doors unlocked, people would come and steal everything that you had. If you didn't protect yourself, people would come and take everything because man is greedy, man is evil, man is selfish. Man, these are, This is what you believe. And that's why you lock your doors. And that's why the locks are for sale. And that's why you have guns. And that's why you have police. And that's why you have armies. And that's why you have borders. And that's why you have windows that lock. It's not because you like living like that. It's because you're afraid live any other way. You're afraid of evil imitation man. You're afraid of the evil nature of man. That's why you live like that. I don't think that man is bad. Essence manifests openly until the age of three or four when personality or imitation man, the costume, begins to surround essence, to mask it, taking charge of it so that it no longer can do what it wishes to do. You think of children, children who are not abused, children who are not forced to do things against their will, children who are allowed to live their lives as they are, children who are not made wrong for being children. Now, there aren't very many, but there are a few. There are a few somewhat enlightened people who allow their children to be children. You can see that the greed and the insanity of imitation man looks at a child not as a being, but as a reflection of itself. Your children are not your children. They are reflections of you. What they do reflects on you. So they must be trained to reflect on you in the right way so that you look good, so that you get all the praise and the accolades that you deserve, that you desire, that you crave. And so you force your children, you regiment them to make them do what you want them to do to satisfy you so that the world will look at you and see how wonderful you are what a wonderful parent you are, how well you provided, how well you trained, how well you did everything, what an exemplary human being you are. And you force your children to do that. It's a lot like taking a dog. You know, take a little puppy, cute little sweet puppy, loves everybody, goes up to everybody, licks everybody, and just plays with everybody. Because that's the way puppies are, and that's the way babies are. But you take that puppy, and you chain it up in a junkyard, and you kick it every time you go by, and you poke it with a stick, or you smack it every time you go by, and you feed it every now and again, and you treat it harshly, and you don't socialize it, what are you going to have? You're going to have a junkyard dog, and it's going to be mean, isn't it? It's just what you want. 
You want a mean dog so nobody comes into your junkyard and steals anything at night because at night you cut them loose and then he runs around the junkyard and anybody who comes in, then he just chews them up. And see, that's really what we're doing inadvertently with our children by forcing them to be what we want them to be, by forcing them to make us look good. We're treating them the same way that people treat a puppy when they turn it into a junkyard dog. I know it's hard to believe that there are people who actually set out to make a mean dog, but there are. Parents don't set out to make a dysfunctional human being. They do it automatically because they're dysfunctional. And the child just imitates the dysfunction of the parents and the people around him and becomes dysfunctional as well. And then we get to be proud of it. We get to put pictures on the internet of our child graduating from this school or that school and how they did this or how they did that. And the one who didn't do well, the one who didn't knuckle under and do everything that we told them to do to make us look good, they went out and lived their own life. They're the ones that are the black sheep. They're the ones that didn't turn out. Tell me how sick that is. And if you can't see how sick that is, that's sick. That is sick, dysfunctional. That is imitation man in action. Life drives imitation man, the machine of personality, ego. But we imagine that we're free, and we're not. We're not free because life drives us. It makes us do what we do. It makes us feel what we feel. It makes us think what we think. It makes us react how we react. You lose your job, you go into a funk. You get a raise, you're happy. Somebody steals your car, you're upset. Somebody gives you a new car, you're elated. But you're a free creature and you do all of this all by yourself. And it just simply is not true. But you imagine that it's true. You imagine that you are feeling your feelings and that you are thinking your thoughts. And the truth is, is the costume is moving you. The imitation man is thinking, he's happy. It's all, they're all his thoughts. They're not your thoughts at all. They're all his feelings. They're not your feelings at all. They're all his actions. They're not your actions at all. You actually don't even exist in this realm. You have to get to the door and get through the door before you can even find out who you may actually be, who your essential self actually is. And it's not perfect. It is undeveloped. And while you're spending all this time out here developing imitation man and putting ornaments on him and dressing him up and getting him awards and taking him here and taking him there and taking him on vacations and buying him new cars and houses and all kinds of wonderful things to make him look better and feel better, your essential self is waiting behind that door, starving because you're taking everything that belongs to it and giving it to imitation man because that's who you think you are. We say I to what we do as if we were doing it. It's not I from within that's doing it. It's not I from within that door. It's I out here. It's the I of imitation man that's doing it. He's really not doing it. You can't really say he's doing it because he's driven by external circumstances. So he's not even really doing it. So when the work says you can't do, what it means is you're driven by external circumstances. What you are identified with, who you think you are, is driven by external circumstances. Everything else is making you do everything that you do. I just talked to you yesterday about an article that I read in Wall Street Journal about the research that they're doing on the brain, and they found that, like I said in memory lane, the synapses, the synapse and the, and the neurons have memory, and that that memory makes your decisions for you. They've finally now mapped the brain, and they're watching this as decisions are made, and they're seeing that the decisions are made 10 seconds before the person consciously knows the decision. He didn't make the decision. His brain made the decision for him. And what made the decision was not necessarily his brain as much as the memory in the routes in his brain made the decision for him based on what they had done, based on the routes that were laid down. So the only real work that can be done toward consciousness is work on our habits, work on our memories, work on our past. And of course, the only time to work on the past is in the present. And now, 
scientists are actually proving what the work has been saying for a hundred years. Saying that it's all set in the brain. It's already set in old associations, in old memories, in old roles that are playing. And the only way to change any of those, and when we change those, we actually change the past because we reroute the brain, which changes the future. So that when you make a decision, it can actually be your decision because you are doing something now consciously rather than by imitation. Of course, we have to get to the conscious part before we can do that, which isn't as easy as, as people may think it is because everyone's walking around imagining that they're conscious when actually they're imagining they're making decisions. You imagine you make your decisions. And what scientists have proven is every decision that you make was made 10 seconds before you became conscious of it, which means your decisions were made by some past you. And that past you was made strictly through imitation of other people around you. And it's a domino thing that goes all the way back to one of the first people who ever fell asleep, I guess. To be able to act from essence, to be able to act from internal I, from the I within, from the I behind that door, wherever it may be behind that door. You remember the door that I'm talking about. It requires the development of essence. The first step, of course, is the development of personality. Unless personality develops, we're lost. We have to have personality because essence needs something from personality. So it's right that personality develop and personality will take over. That's inevitable. What has to happen then at some point is we must begin to wean ourselves from personality and then allow essence to emerge, which becomes the emerging man rather than the imitation man. For essence to develop further after personality has developed like a costume and surrounded essence, enclosed essence, encased essence, restricted essence action. After that, personality has to be made passive in order for essence to begin to develop again. Essence only develops till we're two or three years old, and then it stops because personality begins to restrict it, and personality develops instead of essence. Essence must learn from personality. For a time, there's an obvious duality. We have this and that. We have right and wrong. We have ethics. We have morality. We have all of these things where we say, this is good, this is bad. And for a time, that's the way it has to be. But there comes a time through the work when we shift from imitation man to real man, when essence can begin to develop. And as essence begins to develop, we can rely more and more on our essential self, on the I within, so that the I within then can make decisions, can act, can do, so that we can begin to live from there instead of live from where we are living from now. This is all that all esoteric teaching is about. It's all about this transformation, Transform, transformation from this caterpillar of imitation man to the butterfly of real eye. It's a process that doesn't happen automatically. It's a process that you must initiate and follow through with. It will not happen automatically like a caterpillar and a butterfly. That happens automatically. Life does that for the caterpillar, but life does not do that for man because man is a self-developing organism. Life grows you a personality. Life grows you a body. But that's it, because that's all that you need for life. So personality is formed for us by life. We identify with it, and real man stops and can't be compelled to grow. It's just that simple. This is the cause of all manner of disharmony from which we suffer a lifetime, not knowing that we're only half formed. Why are we suffering? We're half formed, and we can only live in the half that's formed. We're living in the half that's formed, and the half that's formed is attached to all of this stuff. And all of this stuff is disappearing. It's changing every day, every moment of every day. And that is the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is the law of impermanence. It's all going to change. 
but because you're only half formed and where you live is in the part that's half formed, the imitation part, as everything changes, you suffer. You suffer loss. You suffer joy that is bound to disappear. You suffer peace that is bound to be disturbed. You suffer health that is bound to decay. You suffer life that is bound to die. There is no way out of that suffering through life, through imitation man. You will come back and repeat that suffering. You will come back tomorrow morning and repeat the suffering of today. You will come back the next day and repeat the suffering of the previous day. And you will continue to do that until you're dead. How do I know that? Just look at your life. Every time you don't get what you want, you suffer. Every time you get what you want, you suffer. It's just a delayed suffering. You just suffer when it's disappeared, when it becomes old, when somebody breaks it, when somebody steals it, when somebody runs over it with their truck, or whatever. So you suffer. You can see that only being half-formed is a deadly proposition. It's a dead end. If you come to realize, you know, I don't think I want to suffer like this anymore, then perhaps you could open yourself up to some esoteric idea. Perhaps you could get the idea that maybe there's another way. Maybe there's some other way I could do this. Somebody else said there was some other way, but the whole world says he's crazy. Well, but I'm starting to think the whole world's crazy. And maybe that kind of crazy is the crazy I'd like to try for a while. And so perhaps you listen to the crazy person with his crazy ideas and his crazy actions and his crazy beliefs. And maybe you don't listen to all of them. Maybe you just listen to a few. Maybe he says, take everything that you have and go and give it to the poor. And you go, he's crazy. I'm not going to do that. Then I'll be like him. Yes, but wasn't that what you wanted? Well, yeah, but not that way. I want to be like him and have all this stuff. I want to have new being and old being. I want to have all my attachments, all my desires, all my cravings, all my uh, aversions. And I want to be like him. And I want to be free. Well, you can see that isn't going to happen if you look at it through the clear light of 2 plus 2 is 4. You can't have this and that if one is antimatter and the other is matter. It just doesn't work that way. A strict upbringing makes a tight, rigid imitation man, making it very difficult to render passive. The more strict your upbringing was, the more restricted, the more uptight, the more of an ironclad imitation man you are. It's going to be tougher. It's going to be harder. Get used to it. Unless essence grows, we're esoteric failures. A good man can be an esoteric failure if his goodness comes from outer eye, from imitation man. Because he's imitation. He's not real good. He's not butter. He's margarine. He's not eggs. He's egg beaters. He's not bacon. He's bagel bits. You know, he's, not, he's not turkey. He's tofurkey. He's not real. So his goodness isn't real. Well, what does that mean? It won't last. It means it can disappear. It means you remove the restrictions holding him in goodness, and what is he? Well, we can see what people are when the world trains them, and they're not restricted by ethics and morals, what people are. They're bad, but they didn't start bad. It was ethics and morals and greed and pride and vanity that they imitated that made them behave badly. We have to receive new knowledge, or we can't finish forming. We can't finish growing the rest of us, the part that's unformed. We're half-formed. It has to come through personality. It has to come through imitation man because there's no other place for it to come. It has to come from there. Personality transmits the new knowledge. The new knowledge is then picked up by personality and some part of personality that is not bad, that is not totally selfish, that is not totally insane. Some part of personality sees there is an option to form more, to be something else. And it begins to apply itself to that. 
and it's willing to become less so that the essence can become greater. But the rest of personality will fight that. So there is a force that new knowledge puts us in touch with that can make imitation man passive so that essence, so that your internal eye, so that your the more real part of you can begin to form, can begin to grow. If we do something because someone is looking or for fear or desire for praise, we're acting from imitation man, not from the eye within. It's not real. When we're stripped of the external life, what will we have? What will we be? When you're stripped of all this, what will you be? What happens to people when the stock market crashes and they lose everything? They jump out of windows. Why? Because that's all they were. They have nothing. When you're stripped of your external life, what will you be? If you're honest with yourself, it doesn't look good. What remains that is real after imitation man is removed? Well, a two or a three-year-old child, an unformed something. External compulsions, social systems, morals, ethics will not only not develop real man, but will separate him completely from his essential self. This is what we've seen. All of these things that imitation man makes up are all for him. They're none of it for your real self, for your essential self, for the self that needs to be growing, forming, in, form into real eye, grow into real eye. You're at the door, or maybe you're around the door. Maybe you're not at the door. Maybe you're not in the door jam yet. Maybe you can't get to the door jam at will. Okay, then you know that you need to get near the door. You need to get into the door jam. You need to get into the door. You know what's holding you back. Your lust, your greed for power, for money, for things, for praise, for, for accolades, for position, for authority, for control. Those things are holding you back. Those things are keeping you in imitation man. Begin to release them. Begin to let them go. Begin to shift. We must bring to essence the gifts that imitation man has acquired. This is what we fail to realize. Imitation man has acquired gifts. He has gifts. He has acquired gifts. Now, let me, let me put it to you this way. I paint in watercolors. And as you know, the style that, I, that feels most comfortable to me, maybe not most comfortable, but the style that I, I would like to grow into the most is an impressionistic style. An impressionistic style is a Western answer to Chinese and Japanese painting, kind of Zen painting, where what they do is they first learn the strokes. They learn the stroke to make bamboo. They learn the stroke to make a bamboo leaf. They learn the stroke to make this. So imitation man is trained to learn these strokes. And it's a rigid training because there are certain strokes. It's just like calligraphy. Okay? There are certain strokes in calligraphy that go to make up the form, the image, the picture. They learn those. Then what they do after they've learned those is they go through the door. They leave imitation man with a brush in his hand and a paper before him. They leave him there so that he can't really do anything. And they go through the door, and they go to this internal eye, and they allow internal eye to use imitation man to paint. Imitation man would go back and fix things. Internal eye never does. It does it from within, and its act is perfect. And imitation man then stands out and judges it and calls it wrong. But the essential eye knows that it's not wrong. Imitation man can make it wrong. He can interfere. And so for us, what we need to learn to do is to allow our internal eye to flow from within, that essential self that is connected with something greater, something higher, the source of everything, to allow that flow to come through and to allow our actions to be from there instead of from imitation man. This is the essence of esoteric teaching. This is the essence of what we're after. The problem is that people get into calligraphy school or painting school, and they get so anal about the brush strokes 
They never learn to let go so that the inner man can do the painting, so that the inner man can do the calligraphy, so that the inner man can do the archery, so that the inner man can do whatever it is that needs to be done, whatever it is that needs to be done. It's the inner man, the essential you, the real you, that needs to be doing it, using the gifts and the talents that the imitation man has brought to it and laid at its feet and said, you must become greater, I must become less. I give all of this to you. This is what sacrifice is. This is what we're after. This is the essence of these teachings. Sooner or later, some way or other, we will be unmasked. An essence will be revealed as us. That's going to happen sooner or later. It may be death, or you may be able to do it before death. You may be able to shift your sense of self, your identity, from imitation man to something more real and begin to develop that. That's why we're here. That's what this is about. That is why I do what I do, to encourage you to do that. And whether you do that or not, that is what I am going to do. And that is what I am doing. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com, to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.